me turn myself on. Good morning, Austin Oaks. Come on, you can do better than that. First service was like really sleepy today. So good morning, Austin Oaks Church. All right, it's good to have you all here this morning. My name is Chad McCartney. I'm the pastor of discipleship. So uh, no excuses if it doesn't go well today. Brandon will be back next Sunday, all right? We are in a series titled No Accident. If you're new with us, it's a series teaching us how to live uh, intentionally for Jesus. So I just want to bow in prayer as we kick things off this morning uh, and seek to really look at what we're going to look at today about leadership or authentic leadership. So let's pray and then we'll jump into it. Father, we love you. We are so thankful um, for just this opportunity to gather together as your people, to be sharpened, uh, encouraged, challenged, grown, and Lord, hopefully transformed. So Lord, my prayer would be that your spirit would uh, move in our hearts, in our minds, in our attitudes, uh, in every way necessary uh, to change us into the men and women that you have called us to be as your church, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Richard Nixon, Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, Brandon Ziske, Nima Reza, Chad McCartney. What do these six leaders have in common? I couldn't figure out anything either, but I knew it would get your attention as we started about leadership, so I just thought I'd, I'd kind of throw some shock value in here this morning. We're in this t series that we talked about, uh, about no accident, living intentionally for Jesus. And it's all about recapturing the mission of the church, what Jesus came and died for and commissioned his disciples for. Because in the Western church, we've all but lost that mission. We've gotten so focused on a whole bunch of other things that we've really missed the heart and soul of why we exist. And we've heard some of these statistics. We're so good at doing church here in America we are great at all of our programs, but we accidentally hope that, that from our programs, we'll make disciples who make disciples. And we've forgotten that that's the whole heart of why we exist, to reach the lost and make them into disciples. And you heard some of these statistics. You've heard that thousands of churches in America every single year are closing their doors that of the church growth that is taking place in America, now we're talking about the growth, not the church as a whole, that 1% of the new growth in churches, not 1% of the church, 1% of the new growth that churches are experiencing is because of a new person following Jesus Christ. The rest of it is just people moving around between churches. That in 95% of the churches, that 95, excuse me, 95% of the people attending church in America have never shared their faith with someone else or led another person to the Lord. And that the millennial generation and the generations below them are walking away from the church in record numbers from any other generation in our nation. Church, when that's happening, we're missing the mark. We're missing why we exist. We're doing a whole bunch of religious stuff, but if it's not resulting in the very mission for which Jesus left us here, then we have to ask ourselves, are we really doing what we've been sent here for? 
And that's what no accident is all about. We don't want to make disciples by accident here at Austin Oaks Church. We want it to be a very intentional process, something that that's our end goal. And everything that we do is measured based on whether we're doing what Jesus called us to do as followers of Jesus Christ. So if you're with us here today and you have a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 6. We're going to look at a passage that I think is one of the most significant passages on leadership in the Bible. We've been looking at this statement that you've seen the last two weeks, uh, and I want to tell you where we're going to focus in today. We've seen the saturating Austin with the gospel. That's what we want to be about as a church, by developing disciples and authentic leaders who live intentionally for Jesus. So we saw this early on when Brandon used his little football illustration, which, by the way, Brandon still owes me a football, if you guys don't know this. He borrowed a football from me, like, when I first got here. Look at him back there. He's hiding his head, sticking it down in his hands. I'm calling him out here because I've talked to him twice about this, and he's done nothing. And the Bible says if he doesn't respond, you bring it to the church. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And if he still doesn't, we got to throw him out of this place, all right? So I give him like this football that my dad gave me when I was a young boy. I mean, so much. It was signed by some of the original NFL Vikings, Chuck Foreman, Fran Tarkington. I mean, this thing, I, I slept with this for the first 10 years of my life. He takes it up, his dog Tug gets a hold of it and just shreds the thing to pieces. Yeah, just like my heart is right now in sharing that story with you. Anyways, I diverse. Saturate the gospel by developing disciples and authentic leaders. That's what we're going to talk about today. Disciples and leaders. Disciples are followers. Leaders are those who are leading others. They're following as well, but they're leading others. What does it mean to be an authentic leader? So two questions I want you to answer before you leave here today. One is, what does an authentic leader look like? Would you even know one if you saw one? What does an authentic leader look like? And secondly, how do I become one or how can I identify one, an authentic leader? How can I become or learn to identify an authentic leader? Okay? Not everyone is necessarily going to become a leader in a larger setting. Okay? All of us are going to lead in some way in, in different spots. But all of us are either going to be a leader or you're going to be following a leader. And it's important that you know what a healthy, godly, authentic leader looks like so that even if you're not becoming one, you know what type to follow. Because if you don't, you're going to end up in a bad way because you don't know who you're following. Okay, those are the two questions we're going to look at. And I could bring in all kinds of great leadership books and talk about it, but I found the best leader I've ever met comes right out of the pages of Scripture. And I believe in this passage, you're going to see the best section on leadership I've ever come across in the Bible in a, just a handful of verses. So Luke chapter 6 we're going to start in verse 39. Let me give a little context to this. Luke chapter 6 is a really important passage or section in the Gospel of Luke. And I believe in that Jesus is kind of midway, maybe a little towards uh, the further end of his ministry. He spent a fair amount of time with his disciples. And his disciples are starting to realize something that's becoming very apparent in the Gospels. Is that Jesus is very different than the religious structure that he's kind of coming through in Judaism of his day. 
And they're seeing more and more. There's these religious leaders, the power brokers of religion, the leaders of the, the religion of his day, and then there's Jesus. And, and they're kind of torn. You see this happening a lot. They're torn between, they're saying this, Jesus, and you're saying this. And so in this section, Jesus is going to bear down a little bit, and he's given them some very significant teaching to his disciples, his, his apostles, those key leaders. And he's saying, you guys are going to have to understand what true leadership looks like, or you're going to end up following someone that you may not want to end up being like. That's where he's at in the midst of his ministry journey, okay? And that's where this teaching comes. So let's take a look at uh, the first one. He tells them this parable in verse 39. He says, can the blind guide the blind? So whenever you see a rhetorical question in the Bible when you're reading it, answer it out loud. I just challenge you. It'll so much change how you read the Bible. So let's try this. Can the blind guide the blind? No. Okay, that's good. Next one. Won't they both fall into a pit? Yes. Okay, just know that because if you follow a blind guide, you're going to end up in a pit. That's what Jesus is trying to tell them. Then he goes on to say, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Meaning, if you follow someone that's heading in a blind direction and they don't know where they're going, when you're fully trained by them, you're going to look exactly like them. That's Jesus' point. So here's the point I want to make, and here's how I'm going to put this, pitch this, but, but bear with me, is the first trait of an authentic leader is authentic leadership requires spiritual vision. Authentic leadership requires spiritual vision. Now let me define this a little bit for you. I'm not talking about the visionary who can come in and, and give this great picture of the future for an organization. That's all good and healthy, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the spiritual big picture of why God sent his son and why God even entered into this world. If you don't see that end goal and you get stuck on the means to it, you're never going to be able to lead anyone to where they truly need to be. You have got to see the end result for the means. You've got to see the forest for the trees. Does that make sense? And Jesus was trying to teach his disciples, those Pharisees, they know all about the Bible. They've studied it inside out. No one knew the Bible like the Pharisees did. In fact, we, we tend to criticize the Pharisees nowadays, but you know what? Mo most of us are more like them in many ways than we are like Jesus. Because we're all about our little side gigs, but we're really not about the mission of the church. And Jesus was about the mission for which he came more than he was about these little side gigs. And so he's teaching his disciples, you want to be like them? Then you're going to end up just like them. So what does that look like? What does that look like for us? Let me illustrate it with two things that Jesus shows us in this chapter right at the very beginning of it. The beginning of chapter 6, there's two stories that are kind of setting the context for what Jesus teaches. It says, on a Sabbath, he passed through the grain fields, Jesus did. His disciples were picking heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands and eating them. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, the Pharisees had created a lot of these rules to protect the Sabbath, which was a day of rest. It never said you couldn't do anything on it. It just said you're not supposed to go and do your regular work tasks. It's supposed to be a day of worship, of family, of just rest and trusting in God. But they'd created all these laws 
that said this is what you can and can't do, like hundreds of them, on the Sabbath before you're breaking the law and you're working too much, okay? So they're saying, well, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They were picking grain and eating. They were just feeding themselves, but they were calling that work. Jesus answered them, haven't you read what David and those who were with him did when he was hungry? He's going back to 2 Samuel where David did this, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. He even gave some to those who were with him. Then he told them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, here's what's crazy. If, if you read the Bible with like, with these kinds of eyes, the eyes that see the bigger picture, you'd find out how funny this story really is. Because here's Jesus, God in the flesh, walking through, and he's picking grain with his disciples, and then there's the religious leaders who are all about pointing people to God, and yet they're standing there saying, hey, wait a minute, Jesus, you know, you that created the universe, you who created the Sabbath, you're violating the Sabbath. Like, wouldn't you stop and go, hmm, Jesus is picking grain on the Sabbath. We have laws that say you can't pick grain, so I got to make a choice here. Either my laws are wrong or Jesus is wrong. What would you choose? Probably our laws are wrong, right? We're seeing things wrong. But they don't even consider that. They get upset at Jesus for what he's doing. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Oh, no. Heaven forbid you heal someone on the Sabbath. That would be a lot of work, wouldn't it? So that they could find a charge against him. But he knew their thoughts and told the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand here. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? Answer, good and save, right? And after looking around at them all, he told them, stretch out your hand. He did, and his hand was restored. They, however, were filled with rage and started discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. You're going to see this is a common trait of people in the church who don't want the mission of the church to take place because it might violate their restrictions on what church is supposed to be about. They get angry when the actual mission is carried out. They're missing their vision. That's what Jesus is teaching them. Here's three statements today that I've found throughout church in every place I've been. I've even made some of these myself when I've been blind to the bigger picture of what church was about that I often hear with people who have spiritual blinders on. My style of ministry is more important than the mission of the church. Now, a lot of people won't come out and say this part of it, but they are saying this. Hey, wait a minute, this is how I've done things, this is how we always do things, we're going to keep doing these things, and it doesn't matter whether they are or aren't carrying out the mission of the church, it's just that this is how I want to do things, and so I'm going to continue to do them that way. That's a sign of blinders. When you see that in a person, you should immediately go, red flag, I don't know that I want to follow someone like that, because they're just going to lead me to a pit that's not ultimately where I want to end up. Here's another statement. I won't give up my favorite religious activities 
even when they aren't accomplishing the purpose of our existence. This has been the American church for a long time. And people hang on to this until they're dragging them out of the church and closing the doors to a church that's no longer a light in this community. People, thousands of churches are dying because of this statement. Because they're filled with people who will not give up their favorite religious activities even when they aren't accomplishing the purpose of our existence. Here's another one. I get angry about the healthy changes when they don't fit in my current structure of church. These are the modern day expressions of the very things that Jesus faced day in and day out when he ministered here on the earth. It's spiritual blinders. If you want to be an authentic leader, if you want to be a leader, you first have to see where you're taking people and making sure that end goal is consistent with why Jesus came to earth. See, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Do you know that everything else he did here on earth, he could have done from his throne in heaven. He could worship, he could have fellowshiped with his father, he could have done everything else, and so will you be able to when you're there with him. The one thing he could not do in heaven is seek and save the lost. That's the one thing that we as the church cannot do once we're in heaven. So while we're here, we need to stay focused on what our ultimate mission is. And everything we do should be evaluated based on whether we're accomplishing that ultimate end. Second thing, Jesus continues after this idea of spiritual vision, he gets into some more personal things. He says, why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? I dare you to answer that question. It gets a little too personal, doesn't it? You just have to say, because I'm arrogant, and I'd rather not overlook my sin and pick it out in other people. That's the real answer, but that's too long for a yes or no, isn't it? So why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the splinter that is in your eye when you yourself don't see the beam of wood in your eye? You hypocrite. First take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the splinter in your brother's eye. Let me do two things from this. I just want observations I want you to make. The first is more secondary, and then we'll work back to the primary. Secondary is this. This passage here very simply and clearly addresses a common mantra in the church and even out in the world is don't judge another person or don't look at anyone else's sins. Just be quiet about it. That's not what Jesus said. He doesn't say take the log out of your own eye and then just don't even bother addressing sin in anyone else's life. That's not what he says. Look what he says. First take the beam of wood out of your eye and then you will see clearly to take out the splinter in your brother's eye. The most loving thing you can do to another person is to help them remove a sin in their life that you and I both know is going to cause greater harm to them if they continue in it. Never does Jesus say, you just deal with your own sin, let others deal with their own sin. No, he says, deal with yours so that you're better prepared to help others in theirs and how you do it. Now, the first thing he says, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the splinter out of the other. So I, I, I need you to, to see this a little bit more clearly. 
So I want to demonstrate a little bit, okay? This passage is, is the word is a plank or a, a huge log coming out. Jesus is using hyperbole to make his point. So here I am. I'm coming down here. I see Alex right here. Alex actually is from Laredo. Alex and Espy here, some friends of ours from down there. And I've just noticed, Alex, you got some sin in your life going on there. It's right in your eye. I'm, can I just get that out for you? Oh, I'm sorry. Did that? Oh, I'm sorry. Did I smack you a little bit there? Right? You see how like corny this is? How silly it is? But Jesus is saying, don't take a splinter out of someone else's life until you've dealt with the log in your own eye. Now let me tell you what I think this doesn't mean. And it's why most of us don't ever really apply it. It doesn't mean there's some big sin in your life that you're neglecting in the midst of addressing someone else's daily sin. Because most of us or many of us say, hey, I've maybe grown up in church and I haven't really done anything horribly bad. I mean, maybe I stole some candy and I maybe lied to my parents, but I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't had, you know, any adulterous affairs or I'm not embezzling millions of dollars. So I guess I'm good to go to help my brother take their splinters out. That's not what he's saying. And that's why most of us don't apply it and we go on and just plow over people or we don't do anything. I think what this means is this. That once you recognize the fullness and absolute brokenness of your character and your sinful nature, and you've allowed Jesus to, to transform that and address that, that you go, I realize I bring nothing to the table. The sin in my life is like a huge plank that I can do nothing to get out. And Jesus, if you don't first cleanse me of that and give me a new nature, there is no possible way that I can go and help another brother or sister who has a sin, a daily sin in their life, help them walk through that. Until you realize the vastness of your brokenness, even if you grew up in the church and you were that obedient child, sometimes that's the worst type because it's not that you think your sin keeps you from God, it's just that you think that you've been so good, you're worthy of going to heaven. That's the only thing that's worse than knowing that you're broken and an absolute mess and shouldn't go to heaven, is thinking that you've done good enough to deserve heaven. Just like the parable of the prodigal son. The worst sinner portrayed in that parable is not the wandering son. It's the older brother who thinks he deserves much better than he's got. See, until you've come to grips with the fact that you are so messed up in your character all by yourself, that if even you were the only person to ever walk this earth, Jesus would have had to go through the exact same horrific death, then you're not ready to address the sin in another person's life. Here's the point for leadership. Authentic leadership requires personal humility. Authentic leadership requires personal humility. Let me tell you what humility is not before I tell you what I think the Bible tells us it is. Humility is not deferring to everyone else's agenda. Let me say that again. Humility is not deferring to everyone else's agenda. That's called people-pleasing. And people-pleasing and boasting 
are two sides of the same prideful coin. Boasting is just more obvious, right? It's, it's me telling everyone I'm much better than I really am. That's boasting, and we can easily spot that. People-pleasing is me passively abdicating what I'm responsible for to try to keep you happy so that you think better of me than I really am. Did you see that? They both get to the same end. Boasting is trying me pass or, or aggressively trying to get you to think more highly of, you, of me. People-pleasing is me passively trying to get you to think more highly of me than you really should. Both of them are prideful. In fact, people-pleasing is more devastating and more damaging than boasting is. Because everyone knows that the boastful person is proud. The problem is, is the passive people-pleaser actually thinks that they're humble. They're in a worse state than even the boaster. Because all they can do is go around trying to build up their own personal value by how well they can please other people. And every time they're pleasing someone else, they're displeasing God, the only one who truly matters. I learned that the hard way, and I'm still learning that. When I became an associate pastor at our previous church in Laredo, I started as an associate pastor. And after a couple of years, I was moved into the senior pastor position. And it, and it like, was eye-opening how different that was. Suddenly, everyone wants your ear. Everyone has something they want to share with you. Oh, Chad, you should do this, you should do that. Everyone has an agenda for the church that comes to church. And they love to go to the senior pastor to try to get him to do what they want to do in the church. And you know what? For a long time, I was trying to balance all those things. Okay, let me keep them happy. They're going to want this. They need this. They need that. And I thought that was being a humble leader. Look, at, I'm just really listening to everyone, and I'm trying to implement everything they're saying. And God just kind of convicted me and said, Chad, you haven't listened to me at all in this process. You are not accepting the role that I've put you in. I didn't put that person in the senior pastor role, nor that person, nor that group. I put you there. And I put you there through the human process by which I've given the church to select its point leader. And he said, until you are humble enough to accept the role that I've given you, Chad, and do what I'm asking you to do, even if it means other people not seeing you the way you want them to see you, then you're a lot more prideful than you think. And that totally changed my view of humility. You see, I was abdicating the role that God gave me to people whom he had not qualified and selected to do the role. And I was more concerned about what people thought of me than I was about what God thought of me. So that caused me to, to form a new definition of humility. Humility is when you see yourself the way God sees you. Humility is seeing yourself the way God sees you. Pride is wanting people to think more of you than they should, and we do that through boasting or through people-pleasing. But humility is seeing yourself the way God sees you. And if he's put you in a certain role, then you carry out that role with all boldness and humility at the same time, 
for God's glory and for the good of others. Because you will never truly love people, you will never truly serve people until you're free of trying to please them and you're only focused on pleasing the one who puts you in that position. Are you with me on that? I think we all can relate to that in our workplaces or wherever God may have called us to lead. I love these statements about uh, Paul that Paul made throughout his ministry. Let me just show you some really fascinating statements. So these are in chronological order. These are three statements Paul made about himself, and they go chronologically, not necessarily the way the books are laid out, but in terms of when they were written. So this is the first statement we see of Paul making about himself to the Corinthian church. He says, for I'm the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So here Paul's, this is what I call false humility, right? So if I were to give you a modern example, it'd be like me coming up here saying, hey, I'm the least of the Hall of Fame football players. I mean, I'm the least of them. I'm in the Hall of Fame, like what none of you guys are, but I'm the least of the Hall of Famers, right? That's not like overly humble, right? Because you're right up there with the elite. But watch what happens as Paul ages and grows. The next statement you see them making about himself is this. This grace was given to me the least of all the saints. Okay, the saints is just a name for the believers, those who are, are chosen of God. Now he's brought himself down from the apostles who are the foundation of the, of the church to just us saints, other Christians. I'm the least of all Christians. He's starting to see himself a little bit more clearly. But look at the last statement he makes in one of the last letters he writes before he passed away. He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. Now Paul finally sees himself the way God sees him before he saved him. He's the worst of sinners. He's at the bottom with all of us, and God scooped him out like he did every one of us. You know what's so amazing about this development of humility in Paul's life? It happened as he got older. How many of us can say that about our own humility? That as we've gotten older, we've actually become more and more humble. That our greater experiences, our greater knowledge, our greater successes maybe, have actually developed humility rather than pride in us. You know what else is miraculous about this? Paul wasn't even married. <laughs> right? I mean, nothing teaches you humility like marriage because they see everything about you. In fact, if you knew about me, I've been married for 29 years to the same person, right? That's a joke. Some of you will get that at lunch today. But, but if you knew about me, what my spouse knows about me, you wouldn't come and listen to me here at church. But if I knew about you, what your spouse knows about you, we wouldn't have let you in the doors. <laughs> You'll get that a little later on. The fact is, is Paul became humble and he didn't even have a wife to, to help him or a spouse to help him see that he's not nearly what he thinks he sometimes is. And that's got to be true of any leader, that we need to be growing in humility if we're growing in authentic leadership. Let's move on. Paul, or 
Jesus goes on to teach this last little parable in the midst of this section. A good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. On the other hand, a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes or grapes picked from a bramble bush. A good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. This passage is about integrity. Authentic leadership requires personal integrity. Good fruit, good tree, bad fruit, bad tree. Jesus isn't trying to make an absolute statement because you can be a good leader and at times produce some bad fruit. And there are some bad leaders that in some times have, have brought out something that's fairly good. That's not his point. His point is that they're consistent. What you produce is going to be representative of who you are, and it's got to be the same through and throughout. In fact, the word integrity, what's beautiful about it is the word has this meaning in a, in a concrete way that if you take an object and you cut it in half or cut through it, it looks exactly the same all throughout the substance. That's integrity, that no matter where you find yourself, you look exactly the same. Isn't that interesting that we live in a world, in our secular world, where nowadays you hear this mantra all the time. I just heard it on TV the other day when it talks about leaders who are extremely successful in their business and something's going on in their personal life and people keep saying, hey, don't judge their professional life, what they're doing professionally with what's going on in their personal life. That's the mantra of our world today. Don't let their professional success you know, affect their personal or vice versa. Just judge them for what they're doing professionally. I find that ironic. If that's your standard, that's great. But when you're two different people in two different places, what does the Bible call that? A hypocrite, right? So, so the secular world says it's okay to be a hypocrite because you can be one thing professionally and another thing personally. But guess what? When the secular world then turns its eyes on the church, what kind of standard do they have for leaders in the church? They're all about identifying a hypocrite. And I think they should be. But what we realize is that you got to pick a standard. And in my, I think, honest opinion, everyone really does want integrity, except when you're not living in it yourself. And the problem in the church is not that Christianity condones hypocrisy. It doesn't. We see it right here. The problem is, is that some of us are still living in that even though that's not the teaching of Jesus nor of the church. I believe everyone wants a leader with integrity. Even the world does, even if they don't want to admit it. And so if we don't show them what that looks like, what example will they ever have? So we've answered what a, an authentic leader looks like. But maybe more importantly, how can I become one? Or how can I identify one? So let's answer that question and leave it on these two things. There's two things I believe are necessary to become an authentic leader. The first is you have to know the one and only leader who has ever perfectly modeled these. You have to know the only leader who has ever demonstrated absolutely perfect spiritual vision, absolutely perfectly courageous humility, 
and absolutely impeccable integrity. If you don't know him, if you don't know the truest and only example of this that ever walked our earth, then you can never, ever become what you don't know yourself. You need to know Jesus. The second, though, is this, and more difficult. You need to submit to the process that's required to become this kind of leader. You need to submit to the process to become this kind of leader. So let me talk about the first one, Jesus. Had Jesus ever lost sight of the Father's vision for his coming? He could have set up some amazing ministries here on this earth. I mean, just think if Jesus was all about small groups, which I think he should have been, but he wasn't. But, I mean, could you imagine the small group that Jesus could have had? Imagine if he was about an ABF. He could have gathered the best and and awesomest ABF. If he was all about worship, he could have started worship conferences and trainings, and they would have gone viral. People would have been flying from all over the place to be part of Jesus' worship sessions and his worship commissions. Imagine if he'd written his own version of the Bible, and it was the Jesus Bible, what? would that be tjb version right if he wrote his own and he had his own study bible hey i got the jesus study bible signed by him like the guy could have made millions doing some great things if he'd lost his vision for the big picture but he didn't and if anyone deserved recognition or to make money or to get fame off of any of these secondary things jesus did But not once did he get distracted by these secondary things in light of his ultimate mission to bring glory to his Father by saving sinners. You want to talk about humility? Don't even get me started on the humility of Jesus. A humility so courageous on one hand and yet so infinitely gentle on the other hand that he could withstand the pressures of the power brokers of religion of his day and never give in to their agendas on one hand and yet respond with such phenomenal gentleness to the very people who nailed him to a cross. I mean, just, just ponder this one thing for a moment. Ponder, just bear with me. Ponder him being nailed to a cross. When you're crucified, the full weight of your body is supported by three nails, one through each hand and one through your feet. You don't die from pain. You don't die from bleeding out. You die from asphyxiation. You can no longer breathe because it hurts so badly to push up and get a breath that you literally just quit and you suffocate. And yet, this is Jesus' humility. He pushes up to take a breath and cry out, Father, forgive them. The very people who caused that pain, he pushes up in the pain and cries out, not words of judgment, but words of forgiveness for the very ones who nailed him there. And integrity? I've never met a man who could so quickly rebuke his best friend like Peter on one hand 
and on the other, show absolute love to a woman who's part of a group that Jesus' people absolutely hated and detested, like the woman at the well. You put Jesus wherever you want, and he's exactly the same. If you don't know him, then don't even try to become this kind of leader because it's impossible without him. But if you do, then there's the first step. And that process always leads through humility. Humility is the key to these principles. You will not have integrity nor will you have vision if you don't first have humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. This is Jesus' Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, if you don't know, are progressive stages of maturity. This is the first step, humility. Absolutely poor in spirit. That's how you start a relationship with God. You bring nothing to the table. He brings everything. From there, if you get down the road a bit, it says, blessed are the pure in heart. There's our integrity, that you're the same no matter what. And if your purity of heart, your integrity, eventually will allow you to see God. You'll get the big picture of what is on his heart, first and foremost. But humility is the most important. Charles Spurgeon said this, every Christian has a choice between being humble or being humbled. So what's your choice going to be? Because here's something I've come to realize both personally and in the church world. Every Christian wants to be known as humble. Very few will submit to the process that's required to become humble. Which one are you going to be? I'd be willing to bet that every person to a T in this room has a circumstance in their life that's pushing on your humility button. It may be a marriage. It may be a child in your family. It may be aging parents. It may be a work situation that you're facing, something that's going on at school. It could be a health issue. You name it. Guaranteed, you have something that's pushing on that humility button. And if you're like me, oftentimes as American Christians, we're trying to find a way out. Just get me out of this, God. And we're praying everything that he just take that circumstance away. And yet he's pointing to authentic leadership. He wants to know who's going to step in. And if you run from it, you run from him. You run from him using the very tool he has lovingly designed in your life to make you into the man 
or the woman that he wants you to become. What are you going to do? It's your choice. You can become humble or you can be humbled. It's the only two options. Church, let me leave you with this. Imagine for a moment Imagine a church filled with leaders like this. Imagine a church filled with people on the journey to becoming this kind of leader. And don't just imagine them gathered here in this place. Imagine what happens when they scatter from here. Humble people, people of integrity, people who see the big picture. Imagine when they trickle into our schools, into our neighborhoods, our homes, our city government, to the world. Imagine what happens to this city when hundreds of authentic leaders are let loose I want to be part of something like that. I think you do too. So what are we going to do about it? Father, thank you so much that you didn't just drop principles of leadership down on the pages of scripture. Because we could have seen what a great leader looks like. We could read about it, we could study it, we could know it inside and out. But it would just have left us in our own corrupt, prideful, blind state of leadership because that's all we could ever do on our own. But you sent Jesus who embodied this leadership to a T and then was nailed to a cross as if he was blind, corrupt, and the most prideful man to ever walk this earth. So that we who are blind and are corrupt and are prideful could somehow be forgiven and transformed and changed into his likeness. <laughs> Who in a million years would ever have come up with a plan like that? But God, we praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.